God, we do stop, and as we've been reflecting all weekend on our country, we do thank you, um, Lord, for the many freedoms that we uh, get to enjoy. Lord, we uh, recognize that this country is far from perfect, but Lord, thinking about meeting even here this morning in freedom without fear, we, we thank you for uh, the gift that that, that, that that is. And Lord, I pray as we consider this passage this morning in 2 Peter 3, Lord, as we think about Jesus' return bringing your kingdom in fully. Lord, I pray that we would live out our citizenship in this country in light of our primary and most important citizenship, which is in your kingdom. So Lord, would you be our guide this morning, be our teacher, or give us an openness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, uh, my family and I decided to do a staycation. Uh, this was our first time doing a staycation. We didn't really know what to expect uh, or even how to do it properly, uh, but we had a, a trip planned that got canceled because of various things, so uh, we wanted to make the most of it uh, here in Indianapolis. So uh, what we did is we created a bucket list, uh, a list of items, activities that we wanted to enjoy uh, together as a family, and uh, that title, that name Bucket List, got quickly renamed by our kids uh, called the Yes Week, uh, meaning whatever's on this list, mom and dad have to say yes to it. Uh, and so if you're a parent or grandparent, you know how dangerous that can be. Uh, now, we didn't have anything crazy on that list, but the, the kids really wanted to go uh, to the Children's Museum. And for me, without really researching how much it costs or remembering how far away uh, that, that, it, that it was, it's been a few years since we've been there, I quickly said, yes, All right, we're going to put that on the list. We'll do that. And for our kids, they're like, okay, it's, it's etched in stone. Like, this is going down. This will happen. It's on the list. Well, the, the week went on. And we had a great time. We're, we're crossing things off that list left and right. We're going to the pool, the park, Flat Fort Creek, you know, having Taco Bell almost every night with that Mountain Dew Baja Blast. Even Milo loved it. It was great. We're just, we're just having a great week. And we're getting towards the end of it and, um, you know, kind of landing the plane of this staycation, kind of turning the corner, getting ready for work. And, and, and yet my two oldest kids who have memories like elephants remembered hey, when are we going to the Children's Museum? It's, it's on the list. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, I forgot about that. I, I was researching how much it costs. I'm just like, man, you know, we've, we've really had a great week, haven't we? Let's just stop and, and, and think about, you know, God's blessing in our lives and just, man, you know, having fun is fun. And this is just so, such a great time together as a family. And, and then, of course, they, they pulled, you know, the song and dance of, but Dad, you promised Dad, you promise you're supposed to. You're supposed to be a pastor, right? And and, and yet you're. And I'm like, okay, fine, we'll go, we'll go, we'll do this. We're we're gonna go, and we end up going. We had a great time. It was awesome. Crisis avoided. Of course, I got roped into that membership because if you go a second time, it pays for itself. Um, and so we actually went this weekend. On top of that, so um, love the children's museum. It's great, um, except the dinosaur area. Uh, there's some. Uh, anyways, yeah, it's a different sermon. Okay, um, <laughs> here here's why I share that. <laughs> because for some of us, and maybe even many of us, we have a tendency that when things are promised to us uh, related to the future, and they sound almost too good to be true, there's a part of us for many where they think to themselves, yeah, that sounds amazing, but I'm not sure it's going to work out the way that you're saying it will work out. And this tends to happen to, to many of us, maybe outside of uh, someone that we fully trust, like a parent or a spouse, but 
for a lot of us, when we're promised things about the future, it's, it's hard for us to fully believe and fully trust. And here's why. It's because all of us have been lied to at one point or another. Or uh, a lot of us have had those yes week experiences where someone says something and it doesn't quite work out the way that they said it was going to work out. And so naturally, walls come up when promises about the future are, are made. We, we become guarded in our own hearts. And here's the problem. We can bring that same type of mentality into our relationship with God, and, and specifically when it comes to the promises of God, and, and in particular, promises about the future that seem too good to be true. And if we're really honest, sometimes when we think about promises from God about the future, we think to ourselves, yeah, that sounds amazing, but is it really going to work out exactly like you say it's going to work out? Well, we're not alone in this struggle. In fact, Peter has uh, been writing to this church, this group of believers who were wrestling with the same type of thing. The specific promise that they were struggling to fully believe in was the second return of Jesus. If you remember in chapter 2, as we saw the last several weeks, there were these false teachers within this church, and they were spreading lies. They were downplaying certain truths, certain doctrines, and in particular, it was the second coming of Jesus and God's future judgment. They were casting doubt on those two truths. And, and so Peter, who now gets to chapter 3, obviously recognizes that the promise of Jesus's return, which has been predicted from old, is so significant. He wants to remind these believers of how significant this promise actually is. So we're going to learn three things about what Peter does with this promise in verses 1 through 13. Here's the first thing that Peter does is he wants us to know that this promise will be mocked. This promise will be mocked. I'll share in a moment why that's significant to know. But look at the first two verses. Peter basically has to remind these believers again of the promise of Jesus's return. And he basically says, hey guys, this is now my second time writing to you. And I have to yet again, stir your mind up by way of reminder of this glorious promise of Jesus's return that, oh, by the way, has three significant sources. If you look at verse two, he says, look, this was predicted from the Old Testament prophets. And we can see that, for example, in Isaiah 24. But then he says, secondly, Jesus predicted it in Matthew 24 and 25. And then thirdly, he says that the apostles knew about this. And in particular, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, after the ascension of Jesus, the angels came and they're talking to the apostles and they're saying, why do you keep looking up in the heavens? Jesus will return in a similar way as he came. So Peter is saying, look, we have this threefold guarantee of this promise of this prediction that the Old Testament prophets predicted it, Jesus gave commandments in light of it, and the apostles knew it. And yet, despite having this threefold guarantee, Peter in verse 3 says that in the last days, which are the days that we're living in right now after Jesus ascended, there will be people who scoff and who mock this promise. They will question the validity of this promise, which is why, in part, Peter has to remind them. Now, this, this shouldn't surprise us when this happens to us. I'm sure you know people who mock the truth that's found in God's word, mock his promises. 
But Peter's writing this 2,000 years ago saying this will happen. So look, that shouldn't take us off guard when when others scoff at God's word. And, And mockery really is a common response to some of the truths that's found in God's word, especially the, the, the places that are hard to believe. Scoffers do not so much reason with God's word or wrestle with the scriptures as much as they have a, a disdain for God's word. They belittle God's word. Peter tells us why. He, he gets to the end of verse three, and he says that they are scoffing. Why? Because of their sinful desires. That's helpful. Their their whole disposition and orientation is bent towards ungodliness, resulting in mockery. So it's not so much for them as having a lack of knowledge or insufficient explanation. It's because their hearts have become hard because of sin. And in particular here with these false teachers, I mean, if you think about it for a moment, if you remove the judgment of God, if you remove the return of Jesus, I'm no longer accountable to anybody. I can live however I want to live, and I don't have to answer to anybody. And that's what was leading to the type of licentious and sinful lifestyles of these false teachers and false believers within this church. You get to verse 4 here, and Peter begins to quote them and their scoffing questions. And we uh, are, are able to identify their rationale. Uh, the rationale was, hey, the earth has existed for a long time and nothing has changed. Jesus hasn't returned yet, therefore nothing will change. They even mentioned the, the fathers who have fallen asleep. You notice that in verse four, that's a, a euphemism for death. The fathers referring to the apostles or the leaders in the early church. There, there was a notion during this time that Jesus would return a second time before all the apostles and, and leaders um, died. And yet they're saying, look, the apostles are dying. Leaders are dying. Jesus hasn't returned. We're all here. This, this prediction, this promise is a myth. This will not happen. And so Peter here is warning us of scoffers of this promise. It will be mocked. Do not be surprised. But notice in verses 5 through 10 how Peter responds to these scoffers. Peter fully explains the promise now in these verses. And in particular, if you look at verses 5 through 6, what Peter is, is doing here, he's referring to the flood during Noah's day, and he's using that as proof that this world existed, came into existence by the authority of God's word. And then also through that same word and the authority of God's word, he overwhelmed or deluged the whole world with water. Okay, now that's important because when you get to verse seven, he then connects it to Jesus's return. This is what Peter's saying. He's arguing that in the same way that God judged the world during Noah's day in the flood by overwhelming it with water, God will in the future judge the world and he will overwhelm the world, not with water, but with fire. Notice what Peter's arguing here. He's saying, if God did this once before in the past, he can surely do it again in the future, not with water, but with fire. Now for these false teachers or these scoffers, Peter is saying that they're overlooking this reality. They're overlooking this example from, uh, from the history, from the Old Testament, and have intentionally blinded themselves to it. 
Now, you take a step back, and this is helpful for us. This is helpful to know that God is capable of judging the world again in the future because he's done so uh, in the past. But I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things that I was wrestling with in this text, and maybe I would put it this way, one of the things that, were, that was just gnawing at me, just kind of this question that was rummaging around in my own heart was this, was why the delay? Like, if this is a guarantee, if Jesus will return and he will judge the world and he will usher in his kingdom in full, what is he waiting for? Like, let's do this thing. Let's, let's, let's bring in the kingdom in full. There, there's so much suffering. There's so much evil in the world. And part of me is just like, I just want to see Jesus right now. Like, I just want to be in his presence. Why is he waiting? Let's do this thing. And, and I was just kind of wrestling with this, wondering, man, I wonder if you feel like that. Like, is there a part of you that believes that he'll return, but at the same time, it's like, why is he waiting so long? And, and maybe even a little bit of, of doubt can creep in. Like, I'm, I'm reading this, and, and Peter, of course, is writing this because 2,000 years ago, there were scoffers in the church, and so he's trying to remind the church of this great promise, this will happen. But man, that's, this is not just for them. This is for us. Like, this is for me to be reminded of this truth because there's a part of me that thinks, well, Peter, you're writing this 30 or 40 years after Jesus's resurrection. We're 2,000 years removed now and nothing has happened. And so I, there's a part of my own heart that wrestles with this promise. And, and I hear this promise, but I can so easily tip into like my kids for yes week where, man, that sounds amazing, but... When is it going to happen? Like, will it happen the way that you say it will happen? I'm just being transparent with you today. I feel like in, in those moments, for me, even as a pastor wrestling with the scriptures, believing every word that's in this book, when I find myself in those moments, I have two options. I can take that doubt and I can put it into a box and I can put it on the shelf over here and just forget about it, which that never works out well because that doubt grows. It's never contained in that box. It starts to disrupt my trust in the Lord, my belief in the authority of the scriptures, my even pursuit of godliness. So I don't like option one at all, neither should you. But option two is for me and for us to take what we're wrestling with, maybe take our doubts, take whatever we're, we're struggling with and, and bring that before the Lord in all honesty, in all transparency, with a little bit of rawness and to voice that to the Lord and wrestle with the scriptures. That, that's how I would encourage you. If there's anything that you're wrestling with, to take that approach rather than just trying to box up your doubts and hide it somewhere in the closet. Look, I'm struck by even the example of Matthew 28. Matthew 28, you have the resurrected Jesus who is with his disciples, and the disciples are seeing Jesus in his resurrection form, right? The one who conquered death. And Jesus is just about to give them his most important instructions, the great commission to go and make disciples of every nation. And yet Matthew includes a detail in that scene explaining the disposition of the disciples. Do you remember what he said? 
He said that they worshiped, but some doubted. They worshiped, but some doubted. Worship and doubt in, in that particular scene coexisted in the same moment. It almost is teaching us that, look, you're called to actually worship your way through your doubts, to not stuff them or, or hide them, but it's possible to trust in the Lord, to cling to the Lord in the midst of profound confusion and profound disappointment. In fact, I would argue that you will have some of the deepest and most intimate times of worship, especially during those seasons. But look, it, it'll never happen if you choose another path, if you go down an emotionally driven, bitter path of deconstruction where you're the final voice of authority. It'll never happen taking that route. It happens by taking whatever you're wrestling with, bringing it before the Lord in a type of raw, transparent, honest wrestling with the scriptures while standing on the foundation of having a deep trust in the Lord. Like wrestle with the scripture. This is how we know God. And it's amazing, even as I was wrestling with this passage and this promise, this prediction, God met me right there. I'm looking and, and Peter addresses that question. Why is the Lord delaying? Why does it seem like God's not fulfilling his promise? The scriptures do not sidestep away from that difficult question, does not ignore the hard questions. Peter addresses that head on in verses eight through 10. And so let me give you three reasons why it seems like the Lord is not fulfilling this promise. Uh, verse eight, notice that God's timetable is different than ours. God's perception of time is unlike our own. Verse eight, look at what he says. He says, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God's relationship with time is so different than our own. Like we are inside time. We experience the past, present, and future at one time. <laughs> we don't experience them all at once. See, for God, God is outside of time. He's not confined by time. He experiences the past, present, and future all at once. Like this is going to stretch our minds for a moment. And I'm hesitant to use an illustration because every illustration about God breaks down. So give me some grace here. But I want you to imagine for a moment if, if life was like watching a movie. For us, when we watch a movie, we see the beginning, the middle, and the end at different times. You don't see the end and the beginning at one time. It's impossible. But for God, and I'm going to tread on thin ice here, for God, it's almost as if he's watching the movie for the second time. Or to take it a step further, God's the director. God sees and he's in every scene at the same time. But not only that, he knows all of the deleted scenes. He knows all, he knows all of the endless possibilities, the, the millions and millions of other scenes that could have existed that does not exist. He knows all of them and he sees them and he's in them all at once. Hopefully it's not heresy. Let's go back to the scriptures here. Psalm 90, 
says this about God's relationship to time. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Thousand years for God is like a watch in the night. That's amazing. Like, I, and I'm, I'm super in tune to this because parenting young kids is a struggle because they don't have a good concept of time. Like, if you're a parent or grandparent, you live in this every day. Like, for example, we're struggling right now when we say that a family's coming over at a certain time, they have no idea how to respond to that. Like, when I say, hey, yeah, the Smiths are coming over at 5 p.m. for dinner, they're all excited, but they don't know when that is. And so not only are they asking me every 15 minutes, are the Smiths here, are the Smiths here, are the Smiths here? But when it's like 4.55, they get up to the, to the front window near the front door and they're looking out. They're like, are the Smiths here yet? Where are the Smiths, dad? Are they, are they here yet? And then when it becomes five o'clock and the Smiths aren't there, or 5.05 or 5.07, the questions turn. They begin to say, daddy, are the Smiths even coming? Are they, are they not coming now? They must not be coming. And they have that type of response because they don't have a mature and developed concept of time. For me and Lindsay, we had no doubt about their arrival. And that's because our concept of time is different than our young children. That's what Peter is saying here about God. God's concept of time is completely different than ours. Like for us, a long time, say 2,000 years, is for God a mere watch in the night because he is an eternal God who has no end and has no beginning. We are like five-year-olds looking at the window, wondering when is it time, when is it time, when is it time? And as young children, we are called to trust in the Lord who knows and sees all. So that helps explain why it feels like this is a delay. But secondly, Peter also tells us another reason is during this time, God is displaying his patience. Look at verse nine with me. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count as slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what's behind God's waiting? It's his patience. He's wanting to display his patience. Now, for me, I think one of my greatest struggles, and if my wife was up here, she would say one of my most consistent sins in my life is impatience. I'm learning. I'm just not a very patient person, and I always thought I was, but maybe having kids you know, changes all that. But I, I get impatient for silly things like waiting for my coffee to be finished, even though I know it's going to be finished soon. And I just don't like to be, I just, I just don't like waiting. I want it now. I want that caffeine. I want it, you know, to all that stuff. But also when I'm driving, like when I'm sitting in traffic or I'm late, I'm impatient. Or even significant things like wanting God to work in a certain way. And yet he's taking his time. And one of the things I'm learning is that what's underneath my impatience is that in those moments, I believe that my timetable is better than God's. 
I'm just going to confess that to you. In those moments, there's a part of me that's like, God, I think you're missing it here. Like, you should be working in this way. Like, when, when something doesn't happen the way that I think it should happen or when it should happen, I'm just learning that what's driving that is my prideful selfishness thinking that I can do God's job better than he can. And what I need to be reminded of is that God's vantage point is infinitely, literally infinitely better than my own. I'm finite. I can't see the whole picture. I can't see the end from the beginning like God can. I can only see this little speck in light of eternity, and I'm called to trust in him. He sees the infinite picture, the masterpiece, all at once. And what Peter says is that we might perceive what God's doing in delaying his return as slowness. How does Peter describe it? He calls it God's patience. Now that helps me in thinking, why hasn't he returned? Because when you are patient, you are waiting for something, whether for that coffee to be finished or for traffic to pick up. What's God waiting for? God is waiting for as many as possible to receive grace, to receive mercy, to turn from their sins and to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And so he's slowly being patient in Jesus's return. And look, for those of us who are saved in this room, you are a recipient of God's patience. Do you know that? Like you are on the good side of God's patience where God delayed Jesus's return so that you could receive forgiveness and grace and be saved and not perish. Aren't you thankful for God's delay all of these years so that you could receive mercy and grace and be saved? So there, there's a part of us, we're reading these verses where we are to conclude, look at how merciful God is. Look at how gracious he is. Look at how long-suffering and patient our God is. God could have years ago said, you know what? I'm done. Let's burn it up. Send these sinners to eternal punishment. I'm out. He could have said that. He could have done that. And look, he would have been just and right in doing that. But he didn't. I'm so thankful he didn't. He's been delaying Jesus's return so that as many as possible would repent of their sins and be saved and not perish. And my question for you this morning on a holiday weekend is have you personally experience the grace and the forgiveness of God through Jesus. I'm not asking you if you go to church. Understand the question. I'm not asking you if you think you're a good person. I'm not asking you even if you identify yourself as a Christian. I'm asking you, has your sinful heart been flooded with the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus. Is that true of you? Have you turned from your sins and said yes to God's free gift of grace? And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Why the delay? Why wait? This is what it's all about. This is why Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's for 
you to, to fall on your face, to cry out before your creator, confess that you're a sinner, confess your need for forgiveness, and accept God's free, unmerited grace. And that would be my plea for you today. That would be my, my encouragement for you. If you haven't become a Christian, if you haven't become saved yet, that you would understand that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice for you. That, that instead of you paying for your own consequences by dying, Jesus said, I'll step in. I'll take your place. Even though you deserve death, and even though I'm God and, and sinless and innocent, I will take your place on that cross and I will endure the punishment that you should have endured in order to save you from your sins. That's what Jesus did. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice so you could be forgiven. And now is the time to accept that free gift of eternal life. And look, we would love to talk to you about what that would look like after the service. Pastors will be available even at the next steps. We would love to teach you and, and tell you what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. But like, this is why he's tearing. This is why he hasn't returned. So you could be saved and also for us to take this message to other people, to share this with our neighbors and our coworkers and, and family members and people who do not know and trust in Jesus. Look, we don't know when he's going to return. We just know he will return. And so that should create urgency to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, the, the last reason I think Peter supplies for why it seems like Jesus is, is delaying his return is that it's meant to surprise us when he comes back. <laughs> like that's why he's kind of slow rolling this thing is because he wants us to be ready. He, he wants us to be prepared. He says in verse 10, it's like he's coming like a thief in the night. You don't know what time, you don't know what day, so you better be ready. And verses 11 through 13, he explains what a life that's ready and prepared actually looks like. But this is also helpful. I mean, imagine for a moment if a thief texts you and said, hey, uh, just giving you a heads up, I'm going to rob your house at three in the morning, okay? Now, for you, you're thinking, and let's just say you believe a thief. I, I know, yeah, my illustrations are just on point today. But let's say you believe a thief. And because we live in Indiana, because it's America, you're locked and loaded, right? You're ready. And, and you're thinking, okay, he's coming tonight. I'm, I'm going to be ready. We posted up. I know exactly where I'm going to be. And I'm going to defend this house, right? Now, if, it, if that thief texts you something different and said, hey, I'm going to rob you, but I'm not going to tell you when. It's going to be maybe sometime in your lifetime. Just going to give you a heads up. You're going to have a very different response. You're probably going to take other preparations and be ready in a different way. Not just ready that night, but ready every night because you don't know when he's coming. That's Peter's point here. And he's quoting Jesus from Matthew 24. We don't have an exact day. We don't have an exact time. So you better be locked and loaded spiritually by living, verse 11, a life of godliness and holiness, waiting for Jesus to return any moment. And this is so important because Peter is helping us to understand that, man, if you believe 
the scoffers, if you believe that God's word is somehow unreliable, that's gonna throw you into doubt, which will lead you into despair, which could inspire disobedience, resulting in destruction. And that's the cycle of sin. Doubt, despair, disobedience, destruction. And so Peter, at the end of verse 10, just lays the hammer down, all clarity, emphasizing, no, 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 the Lord will return. His judgment is certain. Notice verse 10, three different times he says something will happen, will happen, will happen. He says the heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works will be exposed. Will, will, will. Peter says, take it to the bank. Jesus will return. He will usher in his kingdom and the judgment of God will occur. Now we don't have time to unpack everything of what these verses mean, every phrase. I did preach a sermon series on eschatology last fall. If you want to go back and, and listen to some of those to unpack more of what this passage is saying. Uh, for example, I can't help myself here, but verse 10 and 12, Peter seems to suggest the burning up and the dissolving of the, the whole world, and then the new heavens and new earth will come. Now, there are two main views on that. One is that, yeah, Peter is saying that the whole world will be completely uh, destroyed and annihilated, and then the new heavens and earth will come. The second view, though, is to interpret fire there to mean purify, not complete annihilation. So instead of a, a brand new creation that follows the complete destruction of the current creation, this view holds that the new creation will be a purified, a renewed, a, a vastly transformed old creation, okay? That's where I fall. And if you want to learn more, you can go check out that sermon from last fall. But here's his main point, is that Jesus will return and his judgment is certain. It's a good explanation by Peter, but he doesn't end there. Verse 11, verses 11 through 13, Peter like a good preacher, ask the question, so what? Like, thanks for the explanation. It's good theology, Peter, but who cares? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And it's a good question because sometimes when we think about eschatology, end times, last days, things about the future, we struggle to connect the dots of how that impacts how we live today in the present, in the here and now. But Peter, in verses 11 through 13, helps us connect those dots. And that's really what eschatology is there for. I love G.C. Burkhauer. He's a theologian in the 1900s. He talks about how eschatology is not a projection into the distant future. It bursts forth into our present existence and structures life today in light of those days. It's exactly what Peter is doing here. He's saying, and he's listing off several eschatological events of Jesus' return, his judgment, the new heavens, the new earth, Jesus' kingly rule. And he's saying all these things will happen in the future. But then he says, because those are true, because you believe in them, you should live a life of godliness and holiness and a type of, of hope-filled waiting every single day. That's the result, that you should be waiting for Jesus to return with such expectation and anticipation 
that it literally shapes the behavior of how you live your life every single day. Just think about that for a moment. Like if you literally believed and literally lived your life as if Jesus could return at any moment, think about that. Jesus could come back. Jesus could come back. That would drastically impact how you live your life as you suffer through trials, as you experience temptations to sin, as you pursue a life of godliness, believing that Jesus could and will return any moment should lead us to living that kind of life. Not a type of irresponsible, unwise living, like quit your job and do all kinds of crazy things, but living a life where, yeah, Jesus could come back any moment. And believing that will lead you to living a life of verse 11 and 12, of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day, living a life of holiness and godliness. Look, Peter, this is brilliant here. He is connecting back to chapter one, isn't he? Some of those main themes he's now addressing in chapter three of making every effort towards godliness, towards living a life with all diligence, living a life that pleases the Lord. Like you could summarize verse 11 through 13 this way, that in order for Jesus to be your king for all of eternity, he must be your king today. There's no way around it. And one of the great truths is that Jesus will reign forever and ever. His eternal kingdom and that Jesus is king. That's one of the most amazing things that we have in the Bible. But look, Jesus will not be your king for all of eternity if he's not your king right now today. He will actually be your judge. See, the reality is that we only have two kingdoms, two choices here. You've got the kingdom of Jesus and then the kingdom of self. And the kingdom of Jesus is marked by godliness, marked by fruit of the Spirit, marked by a dependency upon the Spirit where Jesus reigns, Jesus is king. The kingdom of self is very different. You're on that throne. That kingdom exists to worship me. And those cultural values that we have in the kingdom of self is pleasure, it's control, it's protecting our own image at all costs. And you have these two options before you every day. And Jesus will not be your king for all of eternity unless you get off that throne and you put Jesus where he rightly belongs. And look, just to press into that for a moment, look, I know living a life where you are building and advancing and protecting and defending your own kingdom is a, it is an exhausting life. And if you've lived a life like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything is a threat to your own kingdom. And there is a soul level weariness in defending the kingdom of self. Do you know why? Because you weren't created to be a king. You weren't created to be a queen. You were created to be a worshiper. A worshiper of the one and only king, King Jesus. And seeing Jesus as that king and being enthralled with the everlasting, forever reigning king of kings and lord of lords is the only thing powerful enough for you to stop building and advancing and protecting the kingdom of self and to start participating in his own kingdom. And so worship is the right response. Worshiping the true king leads to a life 
of godliness. I love how Tim Keller actually talks about the role of worship and our pursuit of godliness. He says that the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. That's what this passage is trying to do, that Jesus will return, he will judge the world, and he will usher his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth in full. Seeing Jesus and his greatness should lead to worship, which leads to a life of godliness. Look, we have this great promise. Don't be like my kids on Yes Week. It's like, man, that sounds great, but I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. We can trust in God who is always faithful. He's never broken a promise, never. We can lean into that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you as we reflect on your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your long-suffering, God, your faithfulness and always keeping your promises, Lord. We are in all of you. Thank you for being so generous or so patient with us. We thank you for displaying the grace and mercy, Lord, in and through Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you offer all everlasting life and salvation to those who believe. So God, I pray that we would believe in this promise of your return, that it would shape how we live every single day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.